0: We are in day two of Vladimir Putin's bloody imperialist invasion of Ukraine. It's a sentence which, as you'll know if you've watched this show in the last two weeks, I didn't expect to be saying I thought Putin was amassing troops as a bargaining tactic and that if he did invade, he would remain in the country's east. Instead, as we speak, Russian troops have entered Ukraine's capital, Kiev. This is an all-out brutal war. Tonight on the show, I speak to experts from Ukraine, Russia, and the UK. Russian forces have entered Kyiv. Their incursion followed this appeal from Vladimir Putin to the Ukrainian armed forces to overthrow their own government. Once again, I appeal to the Ukrainian armed forces. Do not allow the neo-Nazis and Benderites to use your children, your wives, and old people as human shields take power into your own hands, like that, it will be easier for us to come to an agreement than with that gang of druggies and neo-Nazis who have seized Kiev and who are taking the entire Ukrainian people hostage. It's currently being reported there is fighting between Russian and Ukrainian troops in the historic city center of Kiev, near to the location of the Ukrainian parliament, as well as the presidential office. This comes after last night when Kiev endured a barrage of missile attacks. And the Ukrainian interior ministry shared this footage of, according to them, the downing of a Russian jet over the city. (laughs) This map shows how Russian troops approached the capital. The Russians are moving in a pincer formation, moving from Belarus in the northwest and Russia in the northeast. By lunchtime, Russian forces were seen entering the northern suburb of Obolon, This footage from social media shows armoured vehicles moving through the largely residential area located just nine kilometres north of the city centre. The Ministry of Defense's Facebook page urged citizens to defend the city as the Russians approached, posting, we urge citizens to inform us of troop movements to make Molotov cocktails and to neutralise the enemy. And to that end, the Ukrainian government have been arming the citizens of Kiev and calling for volunteer fighters speaking to CBS News, a 44-year-old recruit, said, this is my country, I have my family here, and I have a duty to protect my family and to protect my country. And this is the duty of each and every Ukrainian. We will fight as much as we can. We will fight because we have our families, our country, and our lifestyle that we are not ready to give up. As Ukrainian forces took up defensive positions around the city, many residents fled danger at Kiev's central railway station. Shots were fired to disperse crowds. Guardian have reported that 50,000 Ukrainians have fled the country in the last 48 hours. But speaking last night, President Zelensky vowed to stay in the city.
1: Today, I have asked 27 European leaders whether Ukraine will be in NATO. I have asked directly. Everyone is afraid. No one answers. But we are not afraid. We are not afraid of anything. We are not afraid to defend our country. We are not afraid of Russia. We are not afraid to talk to Russia. Sadly, today we lost 137 heroes, our citizens, 10 of them were officers, 316 people have been wounded, they have not surrendered. They will all be awarded posthumously the title of the hero of Ukraine. Let those who gave their lives for Ukraine be remembered forever. I remain in the capital. My family is also in Ukraine. My children are in Ukraine. They are not traitors. They are citizens of Ukraine. According to the information we have, the enemy has marked me as target number one, my family as target number two. They want to damage Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state.
0: At present, the British Ministry of Defense estimates that 450 Russian soldiers have been killed while there have been 194 Ukrainian fatalities including 57 civilians. I'm joined now by Vladimir Ishenko, a Ukrainian sociologist at the Free University of Berlin. Vladimir, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. We really do appreciate it. I wanted to start the conversation actually by asking what you're hearing from friends and, and family in Ukraine at the moment.
2: Uh, that w- what I hear from my relatives in Kiev uh, that, yeah, many people are living and there are problems uh, To leave the city, huge traffic jams and also the crowds, uh, the central station that you've shown. But also, um, I think most people are staying partially because they cannot leave. They think it would be just dangerous right now. Uh, Or they believe that the uh, fights would end quite soon. Or some part of them are ready to fight in the streets. And uh, yeah, the street fight. Scenario would be of course, like the horrible for, for the city. Obviously, it's
0: a horrible choice to have to make. Do you leave? Do you stay and hope the fighting is short? Or do you take up arms? And obviously, Zelensky at this point is, is very much encouraging people to stay and fight and to take up arms. What's your perspective on that, on that decision on, on his part? I mean, on the one hand, obviously, these people have every justification and every right to do this. At the same time, a long guerrilla war could have appalling humanitarian costs.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a difficult choice he, he has to make. And uh, I we first need to acknowledge that he is staying in, in, in the capital, in Kyiv, and he doesn't leave the city because before the invasion started, uh, I've read some opinions that uh, the only reason that Ukraine denies the uh, probability of the invasion, as they actually do, that they would just take the flights from Kiev in the first hours and leave the country and they would be betrayed. And we need to acknowledge that uh, the, the government is there in Kiev and uh, so far they are ready to lead the resistance. They are also ready to talk to Russia but uh, as probably known now, Russia is pushing for, for quite harsh demands to start the talks, and I'm not sure they would trade it so far and Of course, the the sooner the talks would start, the more lives would be saved and less destruction would be. And the question, of course, would be about the military balance. Maybe Zelensky is indeed hoping for massive resistance. And today, um, so far, we've seen not so much advance by Russian troops, at least uh, to, to the extent I could follow the news. The advance in the first day was much further and more uh, territories occupied and this day it, could, it looks like uh, kind of like stagnation on many front lines except of, of the advance to Kiev and it could be the first target they would want to take and then maybe either to force the Ukrainian government to surrender or to install a Russian government and then uh, hoping for surrendering the parts of U- U- Ukrainian military and other cities so they, they would not, uh, I mean, so that the Russian army would not need to assault them. But uh, it's it really, really, really difficult to predict how the, the fight would would continue.
0: It's an impossible it's an impossible choice, it's a possible position to be put in. Let's take a look at a map of, this is from the New York Times, sort of showing where the latest troop movements are, where they've got <coughs> those little explosion signs, that's ground fighting or incursion. So all across the, the eastern border of the country, then also up from Crimea and then on Kiev. And I mean, uh, looking at that map, are you pretty certain that Putin... And as I said at the beginning of this show, I, I really didn't expect this to happen. Do you think Putin wants to take the whole of Ukraine before any negotiations will, will begin?
2: I didn't expect this scenario. And like you, I expected rather different strategy, a gradual destabilization of Ukraine. And this is what Ukrainian intelligence expected. And this is what Ukrainian government expected. And Putin was able to attack suddenly, despite all this... Talks about the imminent invasion for several months. Uh, he was able to actually to, to exploit sudden moment. Um, what he proclaimed at uh, the, uh, the goals of this what he called uh, an operation is uh, demilitarization, which means uh, the destruction of Ukrainian military potential, and that's uh, the, what they started to do in the first days with attacks on the military objects, but also denazification and earlier. Uh, Putin t- talked about decommunization in the speech on Monday. So uh, he may tell you that uh, the Russian army does not go, uh, is not going to occupy Ukraine, but denazification cannot mean anything else as part of Ukrainian society. And that means that they need to take Kyiv, they need to proclaim the new government, and to take control over a significant part of Ukraine. Dehumanization, which he mentioned uh, on Monday, means a partition of Ukraine with all this, that historical references uh, saying that Lenin created a modern map of, of Ukraine, the modern borders of Ukrainian states. And dechumanization means that we are revising these borders. So it could be partition. It could be another structure for Ukrainian state, like confederation or, fed- or federation. We'll see.
0: I presume at some point, Putin is, is hoping that there is at least, you know, some acceptance of whatever plan he has for Ukraine from the Ukrainian people, because otherwise this would just be a forever war. I mean, maybe he's willing to risk that. I imagine he probably is willing to risk that. But do you see any scenario where Putin gets some of what he wants and the Ukrainian population basically accept that? They say, well, this is better than war, so we'll, we'll go with, with, with what he wants. Can you, can you
2: see any scenario that fits that narrative? Uh, One scenario could be massive destruction and uh, continuous immiseration when the people uh, would would just feel that uh, they're not ready for for resistance. I actually don't think that in the southeastern Ukraine the armed resistance to Russian army would take a massive scale In Kiev. it's more possible but not in the cities like, like Odessa or Kharkov but That uh, armed resistance would be sufficient to make the new political regime in a potential pro-Russian Ukraine uh, one of the most repressive in the whole post-Soviet space. And that would lead to uh, unarmed resistance by larger social groups. It is indeed the problem uh, which social group in Ukrainian society could even benefit anything from Russian occupation and from, from, from a Russian government. And so the, this government would, would not have any legitimacy, any social base of support, and it would be inherently unstable. And furthermore, this instability would uh, diffuse to Russia and Belarus as well inspiring the local opposition. And, of course, the more casualties Russian troops would would suffer in Ukraine, the larger would be uh, anti-war protests in Russia. We've seen them uh, yesterday. They were not big. uh, But, of course, that depends on how how large casualties uh, Russian army would suffer in Ukraine.
0: Finally, lots of people are talking about you know what demands can can people outside of Ukraine make of their governments. Obviously, very specific if you're living in, in in Russia, but for people living elsewhere, what kind of things would you be calling for for outside governments to be doing in this situation?
2: Uh, we need to call for immediate talks. The sooner the talks start, the more lives would be saved, the less destruction to Ukrainian cities and Ukrainian industry, uk- Ukrainian economy would be made. That's the first thing. And uh, the whole world needs to call Russia to stop military actions and leave Ukrainian territory. That's the first thing to do. The way to force Russia is actually, I look very pessimistic on this. Some people call for switching them off from the SWIFT system. But I actually think they, they, they've been preparing to this since 2014. In 2014, when they annexed Crimea and started to support the separatists in Donbass, they were already, there were already been talks about cutting off SWIFT, and they developed their own system. So I don't think that Russian banks would stop functioning. They've already prepared a solution. What else uh, they can do? We've seen in, in the United States sanctions that they actually uh, they, they sanctioned the two biggest Russian banks, but they specifically allowed energy trade and, uh, and another li- uh, list of the most important Russian export. So it's actually <laughs> this is like 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 business as usual. They proclaim solidarity with Ukraine, but at the same time they're also thinking about uh, the interests of. Uh, of the American and European corporations, and in this situation, it's just, uh, it's just a feeling of the of desperation.
0: Vladimir Shenko, thank you so much for speaking to us this evening, and all our solidarity to you and yours.
2: Thank you.
0: Let's go on to our next story. Russia has justified its invasion of their neighbor with wild lies about the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people. For example, this was how Foreign Secretary Sergei Lavrov justified attacking Ukraine. We see no chance of recognizing a government as democratic that uses genocide against their own people. The goal of this operation is there in the open to demilitarize and denazify because constant torch marches, constant honoring Nazi officials, introducing Nazi habits as part of these so-called volunteer battalions. So the case for war is that Ukrainians are genocidal neo-Nazis. Of course, there are some neo-Nazis fighting in Ukraine, but they are a tiny minority. Ukraine's president is Jewish and there is no genocide. Thankfully, despite Putin's control of the airwaves in Russia, there seem to be many Russians who aren't buying the lies. Despite the risk of arrest and violence at the hand of Russian police, hundreds have turned out to protest their country's invasion of Ukraine.
3: Ноги. Ты
4: меня,
3: я
0: 2,000 protesters have been arrested so far. And it's not just those you might expect who are rejecting Putin's war. BBC journalist Grigor Atanizhin posted this. Today, I asked a Russian diplomat how he was doing. I don't know how to respond to this question, he texted back. I am disgusted with myself. I am sick with myself. I am ashamed that we all partially let this happen. We all lied. How can there be forgiveness for us? And there are some, some particularly surprising figures who have come out against the war. Lisa Peskova is the daughter of Putin's spokesman. She posted no to war on Instagram, though she quickly deleted it afterwards. Sofia Abramovich is the daughter of Roman Abramovich. She posted this. Russia wants a war with Ukraine. She's crossed it out and said, no, Putin wants a war with Ukraine. Then it says the biggest and most successful lie of Kremlin's propaganda is that most Russians stand with Putin. Obviously, Roman Abramovich, a Russian oligarch considered very close to Putin. Also against the war is jailed Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. He used a court appearance to speak out against Putin's war. Radio Free Europe report, Navalny, dressed in a prison uniform, said the war would lead to a huge number of victims, destroyed futures, and the continuation of this line of impoverishment of the citizens of Russia. I am against this war, he said, adding that Russian President Vladimir Putin bears full responsibility for the conflict and calling those who launched the war bandits and thieves. To find out more about resistance in Russia to Putin's war, I spoke to Ilya Matveev, a researcher and lecturer based in St. Petersburg. I started our conversation by asking about the personal risks taken by Russians when they go on these protests.
4: There is a very high risk of being arrested by riot police, by ordinary police, by National Guard, by whatever police force is present. This can result in an administrative arrest of up to 30 days. And uh, potentially for a small percentage of people, this can also result in a prison sentence. For instance, they would uh, frame you for uh, supposedly attacking a policeman. This results in a prison sentence. So in every major protest, uh, several people uh, would be sent to prison. And uh, consequently, the risk is very high. The risk is very high because uh, it's, uh, it could be 30 days in jail, it could be actually one year in jail, two years in jail, if they decide that you attacked uh, a policeman. And in any case, I mean, for, for the majority of people, probably they managed to slip away from police. But I would say that maybe 20% of people were detained because overall, all across Russia were arrested for participation in, in these protests, right? So it's arrests and uh, some of them will pay a fine. Some of them will uh, serve several days in prison. Some of them might even receive criminal charges. So the risks are very high, I would say.
0: What are the attitudes of the general public in, in Russia to this war? And I suppose, how would, how would we know what they are? It is difficult to say.
4: Because um, well, any kind of sociology is questionable in authoritarian regimes, right? So what people say and what they don't say in these circumstances, it's not really comparable to sociological polls in uh, democratic countries. Nevertheless, there was a survey done by Levada Center, which is an independent uh, polling agency, and according to this survey, forty-five percent of people supported recognition of uh, people's republics, and uh, 40% didn't support the recognition of the people's republics. So, from this, I see that there is no consensus. There is no broad broad consensus in Russian society in terms of supporting uh, the war. And uh, this corresponds to my own impression Basically, it's impossible to find a person who would uh, cheer and be enthusiastic about the fact that Russia is bombing Kiev. And on the contrary, the amount of people who are demoralized, shocked, devastated, completely opposed to what's going on is, uh, well, am- among those who I know, among those uh, am- among my circle, it's basically 100%. 100% of people completely reject
0: this war. Does that suggest that this decision from Vladimir Putin might have backfired? I know when Russia sort of annexed Crimea, that was a popular move. It seems like this isn't going to have the same effect.
4: Right. So I believe it's different from Crimea. I think that uh, the same trick cannot work two times in exactly the same fashion. Furthermore, uh, annexation of Crimea did not look like a war. It was uh, more or less peaceful and uh only one or two people died during this whole operation. And this, on the contrary, is a real war, despite the fact that on Russian TV it's called a special operation or something. So everyone understands it for what it is. It is war. Will it seriously destabilize the regime? It's currently hard to say, but I think that at least there is a tension. There is a tension in society. And uh, there is a tension among the elites as well, because uh, I don't see any real enthusiasm even among the uh, national security establishment for this war. So from what I saw, the one person who is really, really determined to go to war, it's Vladimir Putin. Everyone else, I don't really see uh, a
0: real determination for a war like that. And what developments do you think could affect Vladimir Putin's mind or, or get him to change his mind? Do you, do you think sanctions from the West could work? Would he need to sort of come up against more resistance than he was expecting in Ukraine? Or, or do you imagine there could be some sort of popular movement in, in Russia which makes him change course or even topples him?
4: So it's hard to say. I think that uh, they did a kind of cost-benefit analysis and they calculated the potential harm from the toughest sanctions that are possible in the current moment. So, I don't think that sanctions can change uh, Putin's mind. Also, I don't really see the possibility for a broad popular movement in Russia that can change his mind. So, to me, a really important case was the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And despite the fact that millions of people went to the streets in, uh, in the United States, uh, they still pursued this invasion. And in fact, uh, 80% of people actually supported it at the time. So uh, street movements cannot really stop a war, unfortunately. Although I think at some point it can seriously damage the legitimacy of a war. So a really important factor is China. And Chinese, uh, Chinese government actually expressed rather strong support for Putin's actions. From what I saw, from what they say, you know, their their position is that it's a complex situation, but we shouldn't blame only Russia because NATO was expanded uh, during the last years and blah, blah, blah. So China is actually supporting Putin. So I think that if China withdraws its support for the ongoing war, this will be serious because this will mean true isolation, true isolation without any serious allies, even sort of situational alliances on the world stage. So China plays an important role here.
0: How do you think this war might affect politics in in Russia? There suggestions that this could be part of a move by Vladimir Putin essentially to, to make what is a, a sort of managed democracy into more of a conventional dictatorship, essentially sort of not letting any elections happen in 2024 or making them even more rigged than they, they usually are.
4: It's completely unpredictable. I think it's completely unpredictable and um, what was called managed democracy was basically lost already because uh, two years ago, uh, Putin uh, changed the constitution, as you remember. And uh, this was a brazen move that shifted uh, political regime into the new territory of a much more open sort of dictatorial kind. The Russian regime was already extremely tough and uh, cancelling elections altogether, I'm afraid it's possible. At the current moment, everything is possible because I think that they can move into full emergency mode. So it's like state of emergency, permanent state of emergency, and during this permanent state of emergency, anything is possible, any kind of uh, repression, any kind of um,
0: tightening the screws of any kind is possible in this situation. No one knows, no, no one can can see into Vladimir Putin's mind, but what's your impression of why he has made this incredibly risky decision? Do you think this is a, a geopolitical thing, that he was, was bitter about the West? Do you think this is him trying to shore up domestic support? Is it him terrified of a successful democracy on his border? Which of the various hypotheses which have been put forward do you find most persuasive?
4: Everyone in Russia tries to understand what happens and uh, to understand the reasons, because The feeling that is shared by so many people here is bewilderment, you know, besides being scared, demoralized, shocked. It's actually everyone is bewildered because how could this happen? And uh, I think that it's not the desire to increase domestic legitimacy because, uh, like I said, uh, I don't see any any real positive effect on legitimacy from this work. So it's not just geopolitical grievances. It's not just confrontation with the West. From what I see and from what I understand listening to Putin's speeches, it is imperialism. Imperialism as an idea and colonialism as an idea. So an actual belief and conviction that Ukraine is not really a country. Ukraine is just a territory that is temporarily not under Russian control that there is a thing which Putin calls historic Russia, which uh, amounts to the Russian Empire before uh, the revolution of 1917. And uh, in the name of this historic Russia, apparently our government is ready to start a war. So this is imperialism as a set of ideas, as a set of convictions. So it's not madness, but it's not just calculation of interests. It's the actual conviction that Russia has the right you know, to 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 conquer Ukraine because Ukraine is essentially Russia. So to restore this natural order of things in which uh, Ukraine is just uh, a Russian province, basically. So it is a real conviction, a real belief. And I personally did not think that it is present, that it is there. But from Putin's speech, I saw that this is actually what he believes in, and most likely some parts of secure, national security establishment also believes in. So it's imperialism is an idea, is a conviction.
0: That was Ilya Matviv speaking to me from St. Petersburg. I want to go to one comment, Just Myrtle. I feel for Ukrainians, occupation should always be denounced. Palestinians have been enduring such horrors for decades, yet no one is in any rush to help them. I think most of our viewers will recognize that while many of the people we're, we're hearing now saying this occupation of, of Ukraine is a disgrace, they're absolutely right. They have been quieter when it comes to other conflicts. So it can be incredibly frustrating witnessing that kind of thing. Let's move on. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been met with almost universal horror and condemnation. That this unprovoked war of aggression is unjust and grotesque is something on which we should all be able to agree. What follows from that condemnation though is more complicated. Should our support for the Ukrainians lead us to arm them so they can resist invasion or will flooding the region with weapons just prolong an unwinnable war? Should we inflict painful sanctions against Russia so that its citizens feel the cost of war or will that just punish the innocent and shore up support for Russia's quasi-dictator? Finally, if and when Russia can be brought to the negotiating table, what compromises should Ukraine be encouraged to make? Is an unjust peace better than endless war. For insight on these questions, I spoke to Mary Kaldor. Mary is Professor of Global Governance at the London School of Economics, and she has spent four decades researching conflict, warfare, and human rights. I started by asking Mary about the likely humanitarian costs of Russia's invasion.
5: Well, I think they're very, very serious. I think this is a war. I mean, we've already heard this morning that estimates of Russian troops having been killed were between four hundred and fifty and eight hundred, and I expect a lot more have been killed by now. We also know that the Russians are targeting civilians, and we know they did that in um, Syria. They targeted hospitals, they targeted schools. So it's very, very worrying, and I think it's very worrying in the long term because the Ukrainians are resisting. And I don't think that means that they'll win. But what I think it means is that what we could see in Ukraine is a very long war, like we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, in a way, Iraq and Afghanistan tells us what are the problems of invasions.
0: I I wanted to talk about Ukrainian resistance because I feel like this is, you know, one of the most difficult topics and the most confusing things, really, for me to understand, because there's obviously an urge In the West, and anyone who's got solidarity with the Ukrainian cause to say, let's arm the Ukrainians. I know that Zelensky has said he's now arming any member of the public who wants a a gun. Now, obviously, that's so, so reasonable. At the same time, I do worry that that will just extend the suffering and extend the war, given that Russia does have overwhelming force in this situation. How would you grapple with that kind of question?
5: We do need to arm the Ukrainian resistance. I think we need to strongly defend. Ukraine against really awful aggression uh, from Russia. I think there are other things that we can do. And I think what hasn't been talked about nearly enough is the growing opposition to the war in Russia. I think in the end, this war will only be brought to an end by a combination of Ukrainian resistance and Russian opposition inside
0: Russia. I suppose in that that latter part of the question, what what role can the West play? Do you think that sort of tough sanctions are the way to try and turn the Russian public against Vladimir Putin? Or is that just going to sort of shore up his support because people think the outside is is against them?
5: I think tough sanctions are important. But actually, I would argue only if the Russian opposition is keen on them. You know, we've seen tough sanctions against Iran. We've seen tough sanctions against Venezuela. And the people who suffer are the ordinary people and the elites just use the sanctions to put further blame on the West or whoever it is imposing the sanctions in order to shore up their own positions. And, you know, I think there's obviously a risk that that could happen in Russia. But at the same time, if you talk to the Russian opposition, they say, yes, you should have strong sanctions. And if they control the narrative, then I think strong sanctions would be very important.
0: Most people have agreed some kind of negotiated settlement will ultimately be what we're looking for here because, you know, neither side, well, the Russians potentially could win outright. It doesn't seem like the Ukrainians will. What could a negotiated settlement look like from your perspective?
5: The only negotiated settlement I could imagine would be total surrender. I mean, what the Russians would do is to put a puppet government in Ukraine, but there would be continued resistance. I think, you know, this is Putin's end game. I think, you know, this war is only going to end if there's enough opposition inside Russia and Ukrainian resistance, Western sanctions all contribute
2: to that
0: opposition. I suppose a, a counter to that would say that, you know, Putin has already survived 20 years. People have written him off before. If he is to continue as, you know, I, I don't know, this, but if he, if he were to continue as, as Russian president for the next five, 10 years, does that mean we're looking at a five to 10 year war in Ukraine? Is, is that the most likely outcome for you if Putin isn't toppled?
5: I think that is true. And I think, you know, the most, look at what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those wars haven't even ended. It's true that Western troops have now withdrawn, but the wars have continued. And I think maybe that everyone is now saying that Ukraine is, that Putin was this clever, wily person. He experimented with what he called non-linear war or hybrid war in eastern Ukraine with the aim of destabilizing Ukraine and preventing democracy from developing, preventing the logical outcome of the Maidan protests. And we all thought it was very unlikely that he would, or a lot of people thought, including me, that it was very unlikely he'd do an outright conventional invasion because we know how difficult conventional invasions are. We knew that he would meet Ukrainian resistance. We know that he will suffer sanctions. And so a lot of people are saying, maybe he's mad. And maybe he is. I mean, maybe he's become mad, which then makes the situation much more frightening. I was horrified when he said on television, we're going to see something that history has never seen. Does that mean he wants to use nuclear weapons? I don't know, but it's really frightening. So maybe he has gone mad, but if he hasn't gone mad, I would argue that what his real concern is about is actually not about, I mean, he does talk about re-establishing the old Soviet empire, but his real concern is that, you know, you were seeing the development of a democracy in Ukraine. And that really represents a threat to his position because the Russian people see that too. And I think what he's most frightened about is democratic resistance within Russia. You know, what I sometimes think, if you think about Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, these, these are wars that I spend quite a lot of time looking at. It's, you know, in a way they're no longer wars, they're kind of social conditions in which people gain from violence and you have continuing militia groups, armed groups making money from violence. And that really was a way of suppressing democracy in these places. And maybe this is what Putin's aiming at.
0: And what's your analysis of how we got to this point? Seeing lots of people saying this is because we weren't tough enough on Putin early enough. Other people saying this is because the West expanded NATO eastwards and and put Putin in a corner. Where do you sit on on that particular argument?
5: Putin is typical of the new right-wing authoritarianism. It's a combination of crony capitalism, people who've made money out of stealing from the state, kleptocracy, ethno-nationalism and racism, and hyper-masculinity, and it's actually the same phenomenon that we see in Trump, we see in Brexit, we see in Bolsonaro, we see in Modi. And how did we get there? I mean, I do think NATO expansion was a mistake, but I think much more important was several decades of neoliberal policies. Somehow there was an argument from the market fundamentalists that if we, if we liberalise and privatise, we'll turn Russia from being a centrally planned economy to being a bourgeois capitalist economy. Actually, we turned it into an oligarchic kleptocracy. And I think everywhere, neoliberalism has had very similar consequences. On the one hand, it's led to extreme social injustice and inequality. And on the other hand, it's led to crony capitalism, people making money out of contracts with the state, something we see here all the time. And, you know, what I think is frightening is that what Putin, Putin's, if you like, an extreme version of this, but it shows how that phenomenon can evolve. And that's why you need a much broader approach than simply talking about weapons and sanctions. We need to think about the whole socioeconomic system.
0: That was Mary Kaldor speaking to me about the possible responses, how, how the rest of the world, how people outside... Ukraine outside of Russia could be trying to limit the humanitarian catastrophe that this war represents. We're going to talk now more about the concrete steps being taken by the West in particular. In the face of Russia's war on Ukraine, the West appears largely impotent. That's not because they're underestimating Putin. In a press conference as Russian troops entered Kiev, NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg gave this warning.
6: Yesterday, NATO Allies activated our defense plans. And as a result, we are deploying elements of the NATO Response Force on land, at sea, and in the air, to further strengthen our posture and to respond quickly to any contingency. The United States Canada and European allies have deployed thousands of more troops to the eastern part of the alliance. We have over 100 jets at high alert, operating in over 30 different locations. And over 120 ships from the high north to the Mediterranean. The Kremlin's objectives are not limited to Ukraine. Russia has demanded legally binding agreements to announce uh, further NATO enlargement and to remove troops and infrastructure from allies that joined after 1997. We are facing a new normal in European security, where Russia openly contests the European security order and uses force To pursue its objectives. The world will hold Russia and Belarus accountable for their actions.
0: The West's dire warnings and, and strong warnings against Vladimir Putin have come with warm words to their allies. President Joe Biden had a Friday phone call with President Zelensky. Afterwards, Zelensky tweeted Strengthening sanctions, concrete defense assistance, and an anti-war coalition have just been discussed with POTUS, that's the president of the United States. Grateful to America for the strong support to Ukraine. Now, reading that, of course, you know, you you never really know if a foreign president is actually happy when they say it's been a good call. It's obviously a diplomatic faux pas to put down the phone and say, that was rubbish, I didn't get anything I needed. But my my instant reaction from reading that is, what is an anti-war coalition? It's simply the case that it was... Never going to be, there was, ne- there was never going to be a coalition that was going to fight Russia here. And I don't think there, there should have been, right? But now we just see these endless headlines. These endless, oh, thousands of troops have moved to Estonia. Thousands of troops have moved from Britain to Eastern Europe. So what? right? None of them are going to go to Ukraine, which is where they would be needed. Now, as I say, I'm not saying they should go to Ukraine because I think that could risk World War III. But the problem for me is if you have a, a military organization which talks tougher than it acts, then you encourage a country like Ukraine to not compromise with Russia. Obviously, we're in a completely different situation now. There's, there's not much point in trying to compromise now. Russia is, is an awful imperialist war. But I do feel like NATO have potentially led Ukraine down the garden path here. And now when they're in you know, their time of, of greatest need, which I do think they're partly in because of the decisions, because of the behavior of NATO, now you get just these warm words and, and not much else. Now, all this means, of course, without wanting to commit troops, the West are relying on economic measures to to try to pressure Putin. This was Joe Biden announcing renewed sanctions last night.
3: I just spoke with the G7 leaders this morning, and we're in full and total agreement. We will limit Russia's ability to do business in dollars, euros, pounds, and yen to be part of the global economy. We'll limit their ability to do that. We're going to stunt the ability of, to finance and grow Rus- the, the Russian military. We're going to impose major and we're going to impair their ability to compete in high-tech 21st century economy. We've already seen the impact of our actions on Russia's currency and the ruble, which early today hit its weakest level ever, ever in history. The Russia stock market plunged today. The Russian government borrowing rates spiked by over 15%. In today's actions, we've now sanctioned Russian banks that together hold around $1 trillion in assets. We've cut off Russia's largest bank, a bank that holds more than one-third of Russia's banking assets by itself, cut it off from the U.S. financial system. And today, we're also blocking four more major banks. That means every asset they have in America will be frozen. This includes VTB, the second largest bank in Russia, which has $250 billion in assets.
0: So the sanctions aim to stop Russians doing business with U.S. banks, completely blocking them from access to the United States financial system. Now, this sounds good. Sounds like a big, strong move taken there by Joe Biden. But there is a problem. Russia's main export is energy. And energy, in all of these sanctions, gets an opt-out, right? Without inkling, this would happen already. Alberto Nardelli and Arnie Dels reported this in January for Bloomberg. The German government has pushed for an exemption for the energy sector if there is a move to block Russian banks from clearing US dollar transactions, according to documents seen by Bloomberg. People familiar with recent discussions said other major Western European nations hold similar views. One official said that conversations since the documents were circulated suggest the exemption is likely to be part of a final package of penalties agreed with the US that would be deployed in the event that Moscow invaded Ukraine. So that's what was written in January. That's what's happened now. There was a, what sounds on the face of it like a very aggressive package of sanctions, but it has an opt-out for Russia's main export, right? There's not much point in having a package of sanctions if you give an opt-out to their main export. We can look at the numbers. Why does this matter? Bloomberg have reported that in the 24 hours after Vladimir Putin signed a decree recognizing two breakaway Ukrainian territories, the European Union, the UK, and the US bought a combined 3.5 million barrels of Russian oil and refined products worth more than $350 million at current prices. On top of that, the West probably bought another $250 million worth of Russian natural gas, plus tens of millions of dollars of aluminium, coal, nickel, titanium, gold, and other commodities. In total, the bill likely topped $700 million. We've got the West talking tough. Yes, of course, we're not going to go in militarily. As I say, we shouldn't go in militarily, but at least we're going to stand up and impose real costs on Russia. They're going to regret this. They're going to regret this with all of these sanctions we impose on them. with an opt-out for their biggest export and we are giving them $700 million a day. So ne- ne- next time you see Joe Biden stand up, next time you see Boris Johnson stand up, next time you see the, the Chancellor of Germany stand up, Schultz, they'll say, we are being incredibly tough. They are giving Russia $700 million a day, $700 million a day while they you know, go into full all-out war against Ukraine. Now, you know, is this because they're evil? Potentially it's because there are some fossil fuel profiteers who didn't want to disrupt that trade. I'm sure that's going on. What's more significant here, though, is that Europe didn't plan for this. So again, as I say, Europe didn't encourage the Ukrainian government to make compromise with Russia. Europe said in 2014, they said, no, Ukraine don't have a deal, which means you are sort of both absorbed within the European and the Russian sphere of influence. Come to us, come to us wholeheartedly. We want you to sign an exclusive deal with us. Implicitly, we'll protect you if something goes wrong. What do they do? They remain completely dependent on Russian gas, which means that Russia has all of this leverage. Even when Russia has now invaded Ukraine, we're giving them $700 million a day. I've got one more graph for you. This is the um, reliance that European countries have on Russian gas. So for Austria, Finland and Lithuania, Russian imports make up 100% of total gas imports. You can see there on the right to what extent this impacts their, you know, their, their entire energy system. The most important one here isn't the one that's at the top, it's Germany. They use gas to produce 27% of their energy and almost 60% of that comes from Russia. So they're the biggest customer. Italy also a big deal because you can see there, it's another big country of course, they get 31% of their energy from gas and 40% of that gas or 40% of that imported gas from Russia. So you have a situation where I mean, we haven't known that exactly this was going to happen. I'd be a fool to say that, because I've been saying last week that there wouldn't be a full-scale invasion. I think probably what's happening is that, that Putin is trying to increase his his bargaining power. Obviously, that's not what's, what's happened. We're, we're faced now with a full-frontal full imperialist war. But if you were going to talk tough like NATO do, like the EU do, then you should prepare to be able to protect your supposed ally when they are in their time of need. And what has happened, Europe has done nothing to wean itself off gas over the past decade. In fact, because Germany moved away from nuclear and because many countries have moved away from coal, rightly of course, they're more reliant on gas than they were in 2014. So talk tough and then give the Russians $700 million a day. That's what we're looking at. What were the Russians doing while the Europeans were completely incapable to plan, incapable of planning for any kind of situation like this? They were preparing. So you can see here on this graph, you've got the the foreign debt of Russia and the international reserves of Russia. International reserves is basically your piles of cash in foreign currency. So the dollars that your central bank has. Now, as you can see in 2014, so that was when there was the first conflict over Ukraine, when Russia annexed Crimea, their debts were way, way, way larger than their foreign exchange reserves. So their debts were right up there at 700 billion. Their foreign exchange reserves were below 500 billion. So you can see there, if the screw was turned on them financially then, it was a little bit, but not to the extent that we're claiming it is now. If the, sc- if the financial screw was turned on them then, they might have had to default. You know, That could have been very significant. Their debts outweigh their reserves. If they're not getting any new cash, then they're not gonna be able to pay back those debts. The situation they're in now, their international reserves have massively increased and their foreign debt has massively decreased. So Russia has prepared for this situation. They are in a space where they think they can take whatever the West throws at them. If if the West throws all of these financial sanctions at them, they can take that easily enough. They can continue. They've got their goal. Putin wants to control Ukraine. He's sitting on enough cash that he doesn't need to worry too much about sanctions. And most importantly, he's still getting foreign reserves. He doesn't just have to rely on this pile of foreign reserves because, as I've said, we're still sending Russia... $700 million a day. And that's because Europe didn't prepare, Europe didn't wean itself off gas, Russia did. So while we talked tough and said we were Ukraine's friend and we'll defend you in your time of need, we weren't able to do any of that. That's why I think if if you're going to talk tough, if you're going to say don't compromise, you need to be able to back up those claims. And what I find, I mean, awful, the consequences are awful, is that the West has talked tough and it hasn't done the work that means it can now stick up for Ukraine. Obviously, I don't think that should be via military means because that would lead to World War Three. But the least we could have done is to have put ourselves in a position, in a situation where when Russia invades an ally, we're not sending them $700 million a day. Let's wrap up there. We will, of course, be talking about this topic all of next week, I imagine if you do happen to be watching from ukraine or if you have any ukrainian friends and family all of our solidarity to you this is an appalling grotesque imperialist war ukraine has been let down by everyone and i can't really bear to think about what is going to happen over the, the weekend before we come back on on monday but for now you have been watching tisky sour on Navarra media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to
1: slash support.